Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Andrew Lewis, who is the author of The Right's Turn in Conservative Christian Politics, How Abortion Transformed the Culture Wars. Uh, The book is published by Cambridge University Press this year, and I have the pleasure to talk with Andrew Lewis today. Andy, how are you doing? Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Andrew Lewis, who is the author of The Right's Turn in Conservative Christian Politics, How Abortion Transformed the Culture Wars. Uh, The book is published by Cambridge University Press this year, and I have the pleasure to talk with Andrew Lewis today. Andy, how are you doing? I'm great, Heath. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm doing really well and and enjoyed reading your book. We uh, talked previously about how this book fits with a couple of other recent uh, books that we've had on. So I hope that people who listen regularly uh, to the to the podcast, this is serving as kind of a a mini conference on a right. related subject matter. Before we get to the subject matter and your interesting book, why don't you just share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, this is uh, this is the uh, I've been at the University of Cincinnati since. 2012. I have a, a PhD in political science and law and society from uh, American University. And after that, I did a, a year of a postdoc at uh, Princeton University. And um, I also have a, a master's degree in, um, in ethics, in Christian ethics, and so interest in theology um, prior to that. And so um, this book sort of comes out of, this sort of builds out of my interest in uh, religion and politics and law um, are all sort of entwined in, in this book, um, and so this is sort of builds on on those things. But I, my research area, my 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 research interests are sort of at the intersection of of law and politics and religion in America, and um, I approach that from sort of a mixture of of quantitative and uh, qualitative and historical studies. And so um, this is where we are, and I, um, so yeah, I'm and- really sort of excited that. That it's released. Yeah, and the book is just just out, just now available, very recently. And yeah, we shipped you. Yours may have been warm still when it when it went in the mail. It felt that way, and I and I read it so quickly <laughs> that it stayed warm. It was, um, because it's one of those Domino's pizza um, bags to keep. That's right. Warm, I think no steam. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in your book, but but terminology I think is 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 important um, sure. to this. And and in your book, you focus on white evangelicals. So why white evangelicals and not all evangelicals and why evangelicals and not all Protestants living in the United States? I wonder if you could explain a little bit about the specific people you focus on here. Yeah, I know. I think that's a, uh, that's a good question. Uh, pretty good insight. I mean, in part, um, it's, it's the, it, this, white evangelicals are, are sort of the, the cultural class that most people, I think, are interested in. When they're thinking about when you think about um, deep cultural um, cultural concerns, right? Um, cultural divisions, culture war topics is often sort of um, uh, 
is this sort of this uh, uh, this white evangelical divide in America versus um, uh, a divide of sort of either um, uh, classically a mainline Protestant divide, which we would call maybe a, a more of a uh, a moderate liberal uh, Protestant divide, or even an African American Protestant divide. So we separate out some often uh, in, in the study of religion um, these different religious traditions. And so, um, in order to to be sensitive to the different sort of uh, uh, historical and racial uh, differences, there's often sort of a limitation uh, to sort of uh, the the white evangelical history. Um, and so. Here I sort of classically focus on on that, primarily on that subgroup. You know, there's some attention to, to Catholics and, and sort of the, the conservative Christian tradition and that Catholics would come alongside that. Um, but no, there's very little attention to sort of African-American traditions. Um, you know, the evangelicals in general, um, sort of non, non-African-American evangelicals, the, those churches are becoming a little more diverse, um, adding sort of, Hispanics and um, so Asians and other groups alongside, and so you know it is important to understand that. But I also think that there is sort of this this sort of classic white evangelical heritage and culture that is also really important to sort of um, to understand it as well. So there are these big groups that they represent the sort of growing diversity, but also they are sort of classically um, racially sort of white. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't spend a ton of time sort of dwelling on sort of the racial aspects, but particularly in survey data, they're often sort of categorized out um, in in sort of these these racial categories. And there's a whole debate about what are the, what's the best way to do that. Um, and this is often the uh, the way that survey researchers have gone. And so I sort of follow their lead. Right now, your title of the book plays yeah. on the double meaning of right. Uh, yeah. the political meeting and the, the legal constitutional meeting. Sure. What does it mean to take a turn towards rights? Um, rights as opposed to what other way of viewing public policies and politics? Yeah. Um, so one of the big themes of the book is sort of the shift from the moral moral politics, particularly, and, and framing issues in the politics of morality. And you can think of things like the moral majority of the late 70s and, and 1980s, that what was predominant in conservative Christian politics. And now it's it's much more focused on the idea of rights and this sort of, um, you can even think of it as this uh, threatened minority politics. And so this vision of, uh, rather than pursuing this majority strategy focused on morals and sort of protecting this the, the proper morals of the country, it's about defending the, the particular rights of a my of sort of a, a Christian minority, and so this turn toward rights, this turn towards an indiv- certain individual Christian rights, individual liberalism, um, that's that's the evolution, that's the turn um, and the shift um, from sort of morality uh, politics to a sort of a certain type of rights politics. Now, recently on the podcast, we heard from Chris Baylor mm-hmm. and his book on the role of uh, the religious right in transforming the Republican Party. Yeah. Your focus here is not so much on partisan politics, but on attitudes towards public policy. Right. Um, but you also trace a political history in your book. Right. And I wonder if we, you could talk a little bit about where your history begins and what was happening in uh, conservative, if it was even conservative, but in Christian politics at the start of the story that you tell. 
Sure. I'm uh, so. In, in different issues, I, I perhaps start in different places, but um, I guess I guess I, I, I begin mostly in the middle of the 20th century. And in the middle of the, the 20th century, you have um, primarily um, conservative Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, who are, are oriented toward um, you know um, common good public policy. Keeping the peace, um, moral morality. Um, they are, uh, you know, you. This is this is part of you know. This is part of sort of the silent majority. Uh, they become part of the um, the, the moral majority uh, movements, right? And um, there is a there is a slow uptake into um, into the movement of what is now known as the pro-life movement, particularly on the evangelical side. And this starts, it starts with sort of Catholic and even some more liberal Protestants, and, and then it's a slow uptake into the, into evangelicals. Um, but this is, this is where I sort of trace this, this, this foundation is sort of what you might think of as um, civic republicanism, communitarian sort of um, public, poli- uh, public policy movements. Um, and, and they're in sort of the, in, in, and they get filtered into sort of Republican party movements. And then by the second wave, particularly in the 1990s to the present, they become much more interested in ideas of rights and free speech and religious freedom. And I trace that a lot to sort of the declining cultural power of Christianity, particularly conservative Christianity, um, sort of cultural threats that they're facing. But a lot of it, I give a lot of attention to sort of the learning about the power of, of rights and the importance of rights for, um, that happened through the pro-life movement. Um, and um, so the combination of, of declining cultural power, learning about rights from the pro-life movement, um, sort of tra- training conservative Christians to think about rights. Yeah, and, and, and so your book is, is, is also about transformation, but, but yeah. a transformation towards a, a- at least one policy and, and more as you get into the book, specifically uh, the issue of abortion. Right. Um, and, and you focus uh, very much on many of the elite actors and, and the kind mm-hmm. of education training and, and uh, that, that you just allude to. Um, so who, who are these important players in this transformation, which, which groups feature prominently in, in the shifting policy views of evangelicals and, and our, and our, instigating a change in, and move in direction towards a, a, a rights-based uh, ideology. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think there are, there are a handful of, of people that, I'm not sure that there are any sort of one particular group, I don't, or one particular person. You know, I think this is something that, that evolves over time and it's sort of, I, I give, um, I sort of try to show like this big episode and it happens sort of over, over, over decades. You know, someone like there's a, there's a theologian and activist, his name is Francis Schaefer, who, um, who starts to bring some of this Catholic rights, right, human rights, uh, rights to life language that came out of sort of the Catholic pro-life tradition. He starts to bring some of that into evangelicalism, though he was, he also wedded that with sort of this cultural, cultural morality um, and early on, the evangelicals who were taking up Francis Schaeffer's language often used more of his cultural morality uh, language, the, the moral failings, more than his 
his sort of human rights emphasis. And so that, that took off more. But there was this thread of, of, of um, human rights and right-to-life language that, that continued on in sort of the pro-life movement. And by the end of the 80s, it seemed to be that more of the, the rights-based language on the, in the pro-life movement seemed to win out. Um, and so uh, groups like the National Association of Evangelicals and even the Southern Baptists by the middle of the 1990s seemed to move much more toward rights when they talked about um, anti-abortion politics um, than in talking about it in terms of morality. They talked about it more in rights and justice language. Um, and so there are a handful of Southern Baptist leaders who, who would push these issues. Um, Christianity Today, sort of the big uh, evangelical uh, publication, moved in this direction. Um, so there are a handful of sort of big, big tent evangelical leaders and magazines um, that, that would do this. Ralph Reed, who, who led big evangelical organizations, tried to move the move evangelicals toward having a more of a professionalized um, strategy and a, a more of a more uh, more of a public way to argue issues. And that public issue, public way to argue issues would mean we would use less sort of Bible terms and less morality and argue it more on uh, more uh, uh, in ways that we could have more public debates. And that often means including language that the public could uh, could get a, could be more accessible to. And that. And that is sort of like rights and more political language, right? And less less religious type language. And so there are a variety of people who are making these streams of arguments. And so over time, it seems that this stuff sort of filters into into the culture. So um, I'm not certain that there was one exact person, um, but there are a handful of people that 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 brought and filtered these messages, and they sort of um, they and so I trace like a handful of these streams. And show that, like over basically fifteen years, they they find their way as sort of the dominant way that these messages get get reframed. Yeah, and and the the book is is not just about changing views towards abortion, and and um, right. it's also about the links between <coughs> excuse me those views and other views, and and you focus in chapter five on evangelical views towards healthcare. Um, right? Would you trace where opinions? had been on government-provided health care programs and where they are more recently? Because this is one of the really interesting um, transformations and changes that happen over time. Yeah, so the, uh, the argument that I tried to plot about uh, the role of abortion in evangelical politics, and uh, maybe perhaps I should just back up, is sort of twofold. And it's that abortion is so central for um, evangelical politics for two reasons. One is that it sort of represents evangelicals uh, in enormous ways because it's, it's the issue that it's, mo- it's so important to the movement. And so evangelical advocacy leaders will use the issue of abortion and as sort of a springboard to advocate on all kinds of other issues. So there may be issues that um, the base of the mass either... Um, they're not certain on, they're, they, don't, they don't have a clear advocacy position on, or even they might disagree with the elite leaders on. But if, they can, if the leadership can tie it to abortion, then it gives them some leverage, some leeway. And, um, and so it's sort of the, there's, uh, there's a way that they can extend the sphere of their advocacy by linking it to abortion. And then abortion also sort of is, has, has had, seems to have been able to teach 
uh, evangelicals about the value of, of public rights arguments in other spheres. So it sort of both teaches about rights and also uh, represents in other issues. So in, a, in healthcare, evangelicals for decades essentially mirror the, the national population when it comes to national healthcare, um, meaning um, they are sort of moderate in what they think about national healthcare. But when it comes to national healthcare initiatives, they have been strongly opposed to some of the major national healthcare initiatives. And so the question is, how have they have even have have mass evangelical movements been so opposed to these national healthcare initiatives? And I tend to say think that like we have overlooked the role of abortion in helping mobilize evangelicals against many of these major healthcare initiatives. Um, a lot of that is linked back to um, questions that the, like the Hyde Amendment started to try to deal with, like who is going to pay for abortions when abortion becomes a fundamental right. And these questions of abortion and healthcare get sort of um, forever linked once um, once Roe becomes a fundamental right. And this is this is always a question about healthcare politics. Um, and this is this is the way that evangelical advocates are going. Are, they are always trying to mobilize the base about abortion and healthcare. When going back to the, the, the Clinton Health Plan and to the uh, the Affordable Care Act. And to the present, like this is these are like these are the key messaging strategies, and it seems to um, be fairly effective. You also link views towards abortion to views on the death penalty, and in order to do this, you conducted an experiment to tease out the causal relationships between religion and opinion. Uh, I wonder if you could explain a little bit about how you designed the experiment and also what you discovered. Yeah, great. Um, you know, one of the one of the really interesting relationships about abortion and capital punishment, is, um, and one of the real critiques about abortion and capital punishment is that evangelicals, for example, people will say that they're not consistent on the death penalty and the fact that you know they will support um, killing uh, people convicted of murder, but they won't you know they won't support um, abortion. And so what's what's the scoop on that? You know they're not consistent on. On, on those issues, I've wanted to sort of look into that. Well, Catholics, for example, they have a bit of a different view, and this view has particularly become important in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Um, Pope John Paul really started pushing this idea of this seamless, seamless garment um, of life approach where you would sort of um, be pro-life um, for unborn children and also be sort of pro-life and, and oppose the death penalty. And in fact, um, Pope Francis has even sort of taken this one step further in the last, in the last month or so. Um, but evangelicals, I sort of looked into it, and they're, they're, the, the evangelical theology seems to be that um, rather than focusing on the accused or, or um, those convicted of, of murder, their real, their real attention on sort of um, the sanctity of life seems to be on the victims, and so you'll see a lot of theological defenses if, uh, of saying something like, "Well, the reason that we need to support capital punishment is we value life so much that taking innocent life is um, is, is so bad um, that the innocent life is such, of such a high value that the only proper punishment is the only retribution is sort of taking a life, right? That's that's the only proper punishment." And so this made me think, like, okay, well, is uh, is this uh, are these sort of frames out there? Like, does this even matter to anyone? Like, um, is, are people uh, convinced by any of these arguments? And so, what I did is I created a 
a framing experiment, and I put a few different options. And, and there are a few different options out there in the public today. Um, classically, there's sort of this these justice frames that um, we should oppose the death penalty because there's some there, um, there are innocent people perhaps on death row, and this is sort of framing a classic book by. Uh, Frank Baumgartner and his colleagues out a few years ago. Um, one is we should oppose death penalty because the costs and benefits are too, or the costs are too high. Um, and then, you know, we have, I, I, I put some arguments about why we should support the death penalty, right? That, um, uh, you know, the, you know uh, that it would be unjust, you know, not to, not to, uh, uh, not to uh, have proper punishments for someone just convicted of murder. And so I had a handful of arguments for and against the death penalty, including these pro-life arguments. And what essentially we come up with is that um, the pro-life arguments opposing the death penalty are not very effective at all. And in fact, uh, you get a little bit of sort of backlash from uh, liberals and Democrats who seem to say, like, uh, this is, uh, we, we, we would rather just... We don't like these religious arguments um, opposing the death penalty. We'd rather just go with these justice arguments or even these costs and benefit arguments, okay? Um, the best arguments for opposing the death penalty, even for Christians, are sort of um, that innocent people will be on death row or that it costs too much. But it does seem that, um, you know, the pro-life arguments for the death penalty um, – are a little persuasive for Christians particularly, that they, they sort of buy this retribution argument. And so well, all that goes to say is that these counter-arguments, when they're made, seem may have some sort of, promote some sort of stasis among uh, evangelicals, that um, it allows, it keeps them from sort of moving toward abolition, perhaps. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of movement um, to, uh opposing the death penalty these days, and even some big religious groups are moving to oppose. Um, but this sort of argument about uh, that we should, we should protect victims seems to be fairly potent. And if they, can, if they tie it to abortion issues, perhaps that might be effective on at least mitigating the, uh, uh, the opposition to capital punishment. We'll see. Um, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of cultural movement opposing the death penalty. So, um, but I'm not sure that sort of the Catholic pro-life movement is the way to go if you're looking to oppose capital punishment. I think that's the, that's the takeaway. Yeah, and, and towards the end of the book, you start to, um, you move a little bit into a discussion of what's going on today and also in the future. And in the epilogue of yeah. the book in particular, you connect this historical transformation to the election of Donald Trump. Right. Uh, what does the future hold for a political movement that appears at least to be at odds with much of what we see from President Trump. And so put us in today and, and also maybe uh, uh, focus on uh, what we might expect in the future. Yeah, I think um, this is, uh, I had to write the epilogue in some sense because uh, I finished the manuscript a, a month, you know, a couple months before the election. And then um, that was the question, like, what does the election hold for this movement, as I think it, I, I see them, I see in many parts of the evangelical movement progressing toward rights, toward components of, of, of liberalism, toward uh, components of valuing sort of individual rights for themselves, and even respecting the rights of others um, in, in, in grand shifts. Um, though 
that's sort of episodic in many ways. But you know, if you zoom out, you see much more sort of respect, respecting and tolerating the rights of others among evangelicals than you have had in the last several decades. And so I think those are really grand takeaways, but like, what do you do with, you know, the election of 2016 and where we're going? And I think what you have is sort of a real, a real question among evangelicals, a real division on like, what, what's the way forward? It seems like we have a handful of camps, um, what to, what to do. And, um, you know, one camp I think is trying to reclaim sort of this prior generation or, um, you know, this, this sort of prior Christian America generation, this generation where, where they were sort of this cultural majority, this 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 past moral majority kind of thing, and and a different camp seems to recognize that they are like the reality that they are in this more of a moral minority, right? And and the reality is that they need to sort of protect their rights. They need to move toward sort of trying to operate in a pluralistic environment. That need that means protecting their rights and perhaps making allies with other people and and protecting other people's rights in order to to get um, uh, to get their own rights protected right making allies and those kind of things the problem is um, that might have meant voting for the same presidential candidate for many of those same people in the same camps like I think both many of them saw thought that they voted for the same candidate but for slightly different reasons um, but there is sort of a division on what the best strategy is going forward. Like what, what are they, what are they after? Um, and so I do think that, that there are underneath the surface of who they voted for in November are real sort of, um, tense differences on sort of what, where they think, where evangelicals think they are going and they sh- they should go, what kind of strategies they should, they should pursue. And we see these, these battles waged over things like, um, how they should protect religious freedom and who should religious freedom be protected for only for, for Christians or should religious freedom be more of an inclusive right? And so you get um, a lot of big mainstream evangelical groups arguing for a broader inclusive right to religious freedom and particularly younger evangelicals pushing those. And you get, um, um, you get more particularly um, older, more politically um, Republican-oriented groups, um, different era religious leaders, really wanting to have religious freedom be much more of a narrow right and really concerned about things like Muslim threats and those kind of things. So um, these are where we find these real divisions. Yeah, the, uh, the book, again, is titled... The Right's Turn in Conservative Christian Politics, How Abortion Transformed the Culture Wars. The author who you've been listening to is Andrew Lewis. The publisher, again, is Cambridge University Press. Andy, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. I really enjoyed it. It was fun.